Okay, Booker Tovin, good morning. So we'll announce our sponsorship and begin in a moment, but I want to remind everyone that January 1st, just a short time from now, South Florida will be celebrating together with the rest of the world magnificent Siam Hashas. For those who've been part of the Dafyomi, seven and a half years, 2,711 days in a row is quite an accomplishment. And there are several celebrations that will be taking place. Aguda is hosting one here in South Florida January 5th. I encourage people to attend that one too. But January 1st, there is a live hookup to the CM in New York. But while sitting outside under the sun, right now it says 75 degrees and clear. On January 1st is the weather prediction here in South Florida. Bli Ayanhara. A live hookup to the one in New York and also local Siyum as well, Simcha Liner concert, uh, Kids Fair. It's going to be an amazing, amazing day. Why am I telling you? Because Thursday, the prices go up. So if you sign up today, SouthFloridaCM.org, get your tickets. There are general admission, $5. It's a fraction of the cost of participating in a similar event elsewhere. $5 general admission, and there are better and better seating and VIP experiences and so on and so forth. SouthFloridaCM.org, it's community-wide throughout South Florida. Thousands of people will be there. It's going to be a magnificent celebration of the CM. Even if you have the ability to go to a more local live hookup, you don't want to miss this one, gathering with the greater Tzibor, Barova, Majus Melach, being with the South Florida community and participating, SouthFloridaCM.org. Tickets go up Thursday, and I know we're very sensitive to that. So this is still the early bird pricing. SouthFloridaCM.org. Okay, Parshas Mikates, page 222. We are grateful to our sponsors this morning, as always. The series for this year sponsored by my dear friends Becky and Abby Katz. In memory of Becky's father, David Grossman, who's Neshama Shirav and Aliyah. And also, the class this morning is sponsored by the Schreier family in commemoration of the upcoming year sites of their parents, grandparents, and great grandparents, Maxine and Bernard Sullivan, and in memory of Uncle Lester Friedman. All of their Neshamas should have an Aliyah through our study of the Parsha and of Hanukkah, Freilich and Hanukkah, everybody. Forgot to wish everyone a Freilich and Hanukkah. Parsha's Miketz. It's a very important and a very beautiful Parsha which continues the storyline of Sefer Bracious and the rise and ascent of Yosef. It continues to be filled with the mystery of why Yosef did not make contact with his father and the unfolding of this drama that despite, no matter how many times we've read it or listened to it, no matter how well we know it, you still are the edge of your seat every year, Parshas Mikates. What's going to be? What will happen? When will the big reveal take place? Parsha begins, at the end of two years, Paro had a dream. He's Cholem. Now it shouldn't say Cholem. Cholem sounds like it's in the present. Paro was dreaming. Not he had a dream. He was dreaming. And in his dream, what's happening? He's standing on the bank of the, on the, bank of the river. So I want to share with you the Salon Rebbe's introduction to our Parsha because it's significant for the Parsha, but it's also significant for Hanukkah. And I'd be remiss if we didn't connect the two. So the Salon of the Nesim Shalom says the following. He quotes the Medrash at the beginning of our parasha of Miketz, that it was at the end of two years, it connects the beginning of parasha's Miketz with a verse in Eov. Pasuk in Eov says, that Hashem put an end to the darkness, because Baruch Hu predetermined and preordained how many years the world would be filled with darkness. And why did God put an end to darkness? As long as the Yetzirah, as long as the drive inside us for poor judgment <coughs> and to give in to temptation and to indulge 
a less perfect version of ourselves and to self-sabotage. As long as that voice of the Sahara exists, we are cloaked in darkness. What does it mean to live in darkness? What does it mean to be in a world that is dark? It means to be in a world of self-centeredness. It means to be in a world in which we are immersed only in our own interests and needs and desires. It means that we are pursuing our own temptations and distractions and we're not living the best version of the best lives. If God were to remove and purge the Yitzhahara, if we all had the courage and the strength and the wisdom to always make the right decision, to think the right thoughts, to say the right thing, to behave in the correct way, then there'd be no darkness, and there'd be no sadness, and there'd be no despondency. That what is the source of darkness in this world is the drive of the Yetzirah. When a person feels that they're in a dark place, hopeless and helpless, when the world feels like it's caving in and closing in, that is the voice of the Yetzirah. That is the distraction, that is the voice that is not allowing us to see clearly with hope and optimism. But rather, that is the voice of the Yetzirah. It's true collectively, nationally, and it's true individually. When you feel you're in a dark place, when you feel the, world's, the walls are caving in, the answer is not to self-indulge. That only feeds the Sahara and compounds the problem. It's counterintuitive and paradoxical. You think you're in a bad place. How do you get out of a bad place? Town center mall. <laughs> Bring your credit card. Lord and Taylor, and boy, you're gonna turn it around. But as it turns out, not only is it true spiritually, not only is it true through the Medrash and Parshas Miketz connecting to the Pasuk and Eov, but all the research also supports this idea. That the more inward a person turns, the more you indulge that voice of the Sahara, the more that you satisfied and pamper the body, the greater the darkness, the deeper the darkness. And the more that you conquer the Yetzirah and that you quiet that voice, and instead you promote and you turn the sound up on the Yetzirah Tov. And you say, I'm not going to nourish and nurture my body, but it's time to nourish and nurture my soul. I'm not going to take, I'm going to give. I'm not going to turn inward, I'm going to turn outward. I'm not going to set time for myself, I'm going to find time for others. The more I do that, in fact, I get out of the darkness and I discover and I find the light. Toshas Choshech Vihilaila, the Pasikan Tilenberg Kuftalad. The Beis Toshas Choshech, as Shotim Kochos, as Sitra Achra. That when there's darkness is when the Yetzahara is able to operate. The methodology of the Yetzahara is to put you in a place of darkness, of sadness, depression, despondency, hopelessness, and helplessness. When you're in a dark place and you feel fatalistic and your life is predetermined and it can't get any better. And so why not? I might as well go into deeper debt. And I might as well indulge more substances. And I might as well behave more impetuously and compulsively. Because why not? I'm already in a dark place. The Yetzirah's methodology and strategy is in fact, when you're in a dark place, to take you deeper into that darkness. To have less clarity and less vision. And see more poorly. And not to be able to taste the light. And that's what Hanukkah says is all about. First of all, the methodology of the Yavanim. Hechshichu eneim shal Yisrael. Choshech zu Yavan. We know it says the passing the beginning of Breshis that Kashbokh created the world, and the Chazal explained that these four phrases correspond with the four Goliaths, the four exiles. And the exile of Yavan, 
which interestingly is called an exile, even though where did it happen? In Eretz Yisrael, which is evidence that for us, exile and redemption are not geographic descriptions, but exile and redemption are metaphysical descriptions. You can be in living in Israel and be in exile, and even if you're struggling outside of Israel, which of course we all belong there and have to move there, and one day we will all be there, and that's where the ultimate Geula takes place. But if you can feel Hashra Sashkina, we'll begin with Sefer Shmos, which is the story of Galas to Geula. The Ramban, the Medrash says that Chazal called the story of Sefer Shmos the journey from Galas to Geula. Now I understand Galas, the beginning of Shmos begins where? In the depth and the heart of Egypt, suffering under the servitude and oppression. But how does Sefer Shmos end with Geula? Where are we geographically at the end of Sefer Shmos? We're in the desert. We're in the desert. We're not yet in Israel. How can you call it Golos to Geula? How could the end of Sefer Shmos be Geula if you're not yet in Israel? So Shechter always explains, because Golos and Geula are not geographic terms. The beginning of Shmos, we're in the darkness of hopelessness and helplessness. We feel that the Jewish people didn't believe it could get any better. This is the way it is and it's the way it'll always be and that's the voice of the Yetzirah. But by the end of the book of Shmos, we have a Mishkan and there's a Hashras Hashchina. There's an intense divine presence and a connection with the divine and that's redemption. You could have redemption in the desert and you can have exile in the land of Israel. Choshech Zuyavan Choshech Darkness is the exile of Yavan. So of course geography plays a role in redemption. We do need to be gathered into Israel and it's where we'll ultimately go and be redeemed and build the base of Mikdash. I'm not denying that, but being in Israel alone does not mean one has experienced full redemption. Maybe the Eschal to the Geula, but not the full redemption. So Choshech, darkness. And why do Chazal capture the impact of Yavan, the Syrian Greeks, the Hellenists, as darkness? They try to darken our eyes. As we read in Al-Anisim, they try to cause us to forget Torah. Torah comes from the word or light. They try to turn the light off. We were seeing with clarity, there's a God, and there's divine providence, and He's involved in our lives. And you know what they did? They came and they turned the light off. And they said, come sit in the dark. Go back to being cave people. You've made progress. You are enlightened. The Torah, Orozu Torah, they turned the light off. No, setting you back. There is no God, there's no purpose, there's no meaning. Everything's random and chance. You have no reason to be optimistic. This is the voice of the Yetzirah. So the whole holiday of Hanukkah is lighting that fire to turn the light back on. I refuse to live in the darkness. I refuse to indulge the voice of the Yetzirah. I refuse to turn inward. I refuse to pamper myself. I refuse to be a taker. I'm turning the light on to illuminate the path and to see what's before me and to understand. What is a fire? What is a fire? No matter which direction, I mentioned yesterday in the afternoon kolo, no matter what direction you hold a candle, the flame is always flickering how? Up. See, our body drags us down. Our body says you're, you're gashmi. You're physical, material being. And all you live for is material and physical pleasure. But the soul says, no, I reach and I strive for something much higher, something much more. And when we look at the flame of that candle, which represents the neshama, the flame is the neshama, I see that flame flicker and dance. The flame is dancing. And it's dancing where? towards Shemayim, up. And no matter what direction I hold the candle, so I'm feeling dark and I say to that candle and that flame, I don't feel like dancing up. I'm turning you over. The flame looks at you and says, too bad. I only know how to dance in one direction. And that is up. I don't look down. The animal walks on all four, it faces the ground because the animal is defined by the earth. 
and the here and now. Behema, bama, what you see is what you get. But the Adam is Adama. We have the ability to grow. We're poised for our potential. And we stand on two feet because we reach towards the heavens because like the candle, we refuse to face the ground. We're always flickering and dancing and reaching for the stars. And that's our mission of Hanukkah, is to dispel the darkness, to illuminate the world and the path forward for ourselves, to turn up the Yitzhahara, the Yitzhahar and to turn down the Yitzhahara. And that all is part of the beginning of our parsha, says the Salana Marebbe. Okay, weiter. So we have the dreams of Paro, and Paro is turning to his advisors, his trusty advisors, and no one can tell him boo. Nobody can help him. Pasuk Yedal, page 224. Paro summons Yosef, because he hears, because he is, Yosef is remembered. Right, what happened? Paro was angry at the butcher and the baker, and they had a dream, and, and they, they mentioned that, uh, oh yeah, there was a guy we were in prison with and he was really good at dream interpretations and maybe he can help you out. So when Yosef at the end of last week's parsha said, please remember me, it paid off. It paid off. What happened at the end of last week's parsha? He told them to remember him how many times? Twice. And because of that, he was liable and accountable. And that's why Yosef served two extra years in prison because he used a double language to remind them, please remember me if or when you get out. Where's the Pasuk? Uh, Im zechartani itcha, v'his kartani al paro. So he used a double language. Im zechartani, v'his kartani. And because he used a double language, he sat in language for two extra years. Because where was his faith and trust in Hashem? He invested too much in man that he was excessive twice. Please, 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 remember me. Remember me. Do you remember me? Are you sure you're going to remember me? Relax. You did your establish. You told him to remember you. And now fall back. So some commentators ask, and if Yosef reminded him once, how much longer would he sat in prison for? Zero. Why? Because establish he had to do once. He said twice, so he sat in prison two years. Had he reminded him once, he wouldn't have sat in prison one extra year. He would have gotten out at the preordained time because he had to do his minimum effort. He had to do his ishtadlis. In our Amun on Wednesday mornings, we constantly try to address this balance, this tension. How much initiative do we take? And when do you sit back and rely on Hashem? What's considered excessive initiative? And what's considered excessive amuna, Such that it's not legitimate amuna, it's just a cop-out person who sits on the couch at home and says, I'm not going to work. I have such faith in Hashem that someone's going to, Ed McMahon's going to ring my doorbell and he's going to hand me a check for $5 million and I'm going to be good to go. That's my moon and faith in Hashem. I don't have to go to work. Is he still doing that? Ringing doorbells? Is he still alive? He's ringing doorbells upstairs. Okay, so is that considered a moon and bitachon? Of course not. So how do you find that balance between a moon and bitachon, showing faith and trust in Hashem on the one hand, and on the other hand, taking the proper initiative. How much is too much initiative? The people who work 20 hours out of a 24-hour day are taking too much initiative because if Hashem wants you to be a billionaire, He can have you be a billionaire working 10 hours a day, 12 hours a day, not 20 hours a day. So you have to work just enough, you have to take just enough initiative that it doesn't look like you're relying on a miracle, but not too much initiative that you don't believe Hashem can come through within the normal amount that is understandable and reasonable to do. So Yosef, who first of all is held to a much higher standard because he's supposed to have more faith, 
Hashem says, once would have been the initiative you needed to take. So you wouldn't have languished one extra second. You would have gotten out on time if you said once, please remember me. But you said twice. And therefore you spent two extra years. So now they remind Yosef, they remind Paro it paid off. And Paro says, oh yeah, I got a dream interpreter right here in my prison, in my dungeon. Go get him. So they go get him. And what does he do? He take him out of the pit. They shave. They change his clothing. And they bring him to Paro. Anyone know what day it was on the Jewish calendar? It was the day of Rosh Hashanah. We mentioned this last week? Right. And how did he get out? What was the catalyst that got him out? Because in the prison cell, instead of turning inward and wallowing in his own sorrows, he bothered to care about someone else. He broke out of the darkness and he lit a candle figuratively in that prison cell. And because he was selfless and cared about others, he was remembered and he got on Rosh Hashanah. So shouldn't you be bothered by something? We know that what? The Avos kept all of Torah even before they were commanded. And Yosef's getting out of prison on what day? Rosh Hashanah. And what is he doing when he gets out of prison? Vayigalach. Vayichalif simosav. Changing his clothing is no malacha. Changing his clothing, you're allowed to do on Rosh Hashanah. If you're at a hotel, you change your clothing ten times on Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> That's just the first day alone. So changing your clothing, you're allowed to do. But what about the shaving? Was he allowed to shave? So Rashi notes that when Yosef was brought before Paro, they shaved. Why? Out of respect for royalty. Zagdrashi, he quotes the Medrash Rabbah. Out of respect, covered Amalchus, he shaved. He shaved. So the Chsam Sofer, Allah Torah, the Chsam Sofer says, I, what happened? I thought they kept Kol Torah Kula. So what do you mean? If you're keeping Kol Torah Kula, you could shave on Rosh Hashanah because you're going to see the king? And the Chsam Sofer says, yeah, you know why? Because they were Eina Mitzuva Va'osa. Yosef wasn't commanded. He wasn't responsible. He wasn't obligated. It was an extra thing. It was a Midas Chasidus. It was an extra act of righteousness and piety that they voluntarily elected to observe the Torah. So if there's a conflict between what you're volunteering to do, which is extra, and honoring the king, covered Malchus, which is fundamental and core, if there's a conflict between the two, which one supersedes the other? So Chsam Sofer points out, and this is so important, Rav Shechter discusses this in his Sefer on the Parsha, he quotes the Chsam Sofer and says, it's so important as we live our Jewish lives with our Jewish lifestyle to know the difference, and I think I've shared with you before that Rav Shechter emphasizes this often. And if you pay attention to his shiurim, he always goes back and says, is this the Raisa, is this the Rabbanan? What Pasuk do we learn it from? Is it a Minag? He always tries to trace the origin of the Halacha and in what way is it binding? And why is that so critically important? Because we have to know the hierarchy of halacha. And we have to know how to resolve conflicts that arise in halacha. So sometimes there's something that we do that we think is absolute law. When the truth is, it's mizah chasidus. It's an act of piety. It's an extra thing. It's laudable. It's wonderful. But it's not a din. It's not a halacha. And when it comes in conflict with something which is a core din, then the din takes place. So Yosef is an eno mitzvah v'oseh. Was Yosef observing Rosh Hashanah? Yes, it makes for a nice Dvar Torah. And he was. He volunteered, but he didn't have to. So now it comes in conflict with honoring the king. Honoring the king comes first. Rav Yaakov Kamenetzke made a similar suggestion regarding the custom of the Avos about not to marry more than one woman. The halacha is you're not allowed to marry two sisters. Arayas, you're not allowed to marry one more than, two, more than uh, one from a family. So how did Yaakov marry both Rachel and Leah? So you know Rav Yaakov Kamenetzke answers? Everybody asked that. 
Well, they were outside Eretz Yisrael. There were all kinds of... Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky has a very simple answer. Yaakov was an Enumitsuva Vosa. He wasn't obligated yet in the Torah standards and rules. He wasn't bound by the Torah's restriction not to marry two sisters. So he thought he was marrying Rachel. Turns out he wakes up in the morning and it's Leah. Can you imagine now he turns to Rachel, who's still waiting to marry him, and he says, you snooze, you lose. I'm sorry, I really wanted to marry you, but, but I've taken upon myself, even though I'm not obligated, but midas chasidus, I've taken upon myself to observe Torah. So, I'm sorry, too bad. Put your resume together, you're back on the market. Can you imagine ya- Yaakov says that to Rachel? So Yaakov Kamenetsky points out, why did Yaakov marry two sisters? Because he was allowed to. And not embarrassing Rachel. And not making Rachel be, have a life of loneliness and being in a forlorn state and disappointing her superseded the Midas Chasidus of already adopting a Chumrah of living Torah even when you're Eino Mitzvah Va'oseh. So you see from the example, both in our Parsha, that Yosef says, yeah, of course I'm going to shave. I'm going to see the king. Now you could argue it was Pikuach Nefesh because if it wasn't clean shaven, and the king wasn't impressed by him. It could, but leave out the pikuach nefesh. Yosef says, I'm going to see the king. That's the right thing to do. In the biography, the article biography of Rav Moshe Sher, Zatzar, Rav Moshe Sher was the great leader of the Aguda movement for so long. It tells the story of once he was summoned to the White House, to the Oval Office on Tishabov. So you know what he did? He shaved. On Tishabov. Because he said, not shaving even on Tishabov, at most is a dindarabonan and it's an avelis and it's this, but covered malchus. He was summoned to the Oval Office. And in the footnote in the article biography, the story of Moshe Sher, it says, what did he do when he went to Mincha, Tishabav afternoon, and he walked in clean-shaven? So he explained where he had been and why he had to. He wanted to make sure not to be misleading. But the bottom line is, Moshe Sher understood what Yosef HaTzadik understood, which is what ya- Yaakov HaTzadik understood, which is what we should understand, that there's a place for Midas Chasidus, and there's a place for Chumras. Absolutely there's a place for it. Striving and aspiring for piety, it's how we began. We don't want to just light a minimum light. We want it to glow. We want to fan that flame and we want it to burn bright. And if you want to take on Midas Chasidus, that's beautiful. But you have to understand it in context. The Midas Chasidus, you have to understand in the right way. In the right way. And he quotes in this essay of Shechter several other examples of it. One with Gid Hanasha, and then a Tziv offers an example having to do with Tzvila B'Tzibur. When do you forfeit Tzvila B'Tzibur? You have to understand what's a minag, what's darabanan, what's daraisa. Know everything's place so that we can make the proper value judgment in halacha. Yo- Yosef HaTzadik understood that he had to shave. He understood that what was right. So now he comes before Paro. Paro Yosef, I had a dream. I can't find anyone to adequately interpret it. You know what I've heard about you? I heard you listen to dreams and you interpret them. Isn't that a fascinating formulation? What would you have expected power to tell Yosef? I heard about you, that what? You interpret dreams. There are two extra words in that Pasuk. What are the two extra words? Tishma chalom, liftor, oso. Tishma chalom, or extra. I heard you're a poter, I heard you interpret dreams. Why does he have to add, I heard you listen to dreams in order to interpret them? Just say, I heard, you interpret dreams. So here I draw your attention to a comment by Revolba Zatzal, the great Mashkiach. And Revolba says the following, such a brilliant insight. Tishmach alom so ta'azin, Rashi says, look at Rashi on that. Rashi on the Pasuk, Perak Memal of Pasuk Tezvav, we're on page 224. 
Ta'azin v'tavin chalom l'vtoroso. You know what I heard about you? That you listen and you pay attention. You're an active listener. You're actually listening. And then you're able to interpret. Loko sam she'enam she'omuklah writes revoba. You're not like the people who the whole time I'm talking, you're just formulating your response, but you're not actually listening to me. That you're just saying what you want to say, but you haven't actually heard me. Before you can understand, before you can interpret, before you can analyze, before you can offer insight, before you can respond, you have to do something which is an increasingly lost art. You have to do something called listen. listen. In Seven Habits, Stephen Covey says, you know, most people while they're listening, they're not actually listening. They're just buying time till they can talk again. <laughs> That's what he writes. The silence of listening is not actually absorbing and listening what someone else is saying. You're just creating that space because it's the other person's turn until you can talk again. So there's two types of listening. There's listening where you're just buying time till you can talk again. And there's listening where you're not even sure you're going to talk again. You're actually interested in what the other person has to say. There's active listening. There's listening where I have output even while there's input. And you remember the old stereos? If you plugged in output and input at the same time, what did you get? Static. You got something really annoying for your ears. You couldn't hear or enjoy anything. So there are people who don't know how to shut down their output. And even those brief moments of pause, where they let someone else talk, there's still output going on. And then there's active listeners, and that's Revolba's brilliant insight on this Rashi. Though what Paro was impressed by about Yosef, he had interpreters, but those interpreters already walked into his Oval Office imagining what they were going to say. Or while Paro was describing his dream, they were already formulating the response. And he can see from Yosef that while he spoke to Yosef, Yosef was just listening. First you have to listen and then you can understand. First you have to listen and then you can answer. Often in marriage counseling, a good marriage counselor who's trying to help model and cultivate a healthy communication will ask the spouse who was listening to repeat back what they heard before they respond. So what I'm hearing you say is that when I tell you I'm on my way home but I haven't really left my office yet, that that makes you feel like I'm a big fat liar. <laughs> well, I'd like to respond to that now. I am a big fat liar and I mean to be me, whatever. So you have to first show that you are listening before you can respond. Yisro excelled at this trait, Vayishma Yisro. Rachav was an amazing listener. That's the real reason that she was so solicited not only because of her beauty, but because she was an amazing active listener. And Yosef distinguishes himself from all the other people that Paro ran his dream by, by the fact that he listened before he spoke. I'll tell you something. The really exceptional people in my life, not only great rabbis, but great people who I've turned to for wisdom and advice, they all have in common something which is really, really awkward and really amazing simultaneously. You're talking to them, you tell them something, and then there's silence. Because then they're first waiting to think about what you said till you were done speaking. Because while you were speaking, they were speaking, they were listening. Then they need a moment to think and process, and then they're ready to respond. Most of us, low-level, superficial, pathetic people, <laughs> we're busy formulating our answer while I'm speaking, so there's no downtime. It's seamless. You're finishing speaking, and I'm already winding up my talking. 
But if you're ever talking to someone really, really impressive, really, really smart, really, really insightful, you'll notice that they take a moment. In person, it's awkward enough. If you've called them on the phone, it's really awkward. They're like, are you still there? You finished saying your part, and are you still there? But they're doing something which really is what Yosef HaTzadik modeled for us, and what's the right thing to do, which is to be an active listener before we turn and respond and give our own answer. The next Pasuk. Vayan Yosef is more biladai. So what's Yosef's response? Talk about sabotaging yourself. He doesn't say, yeah, you know, with a little humility. It's true. I'm very blessed. I have the ability to interpret dreams. I have a pretty good track record. I have some success in that area. I've been told I'm good at it. What does he say? I don't know what you're talking about. I'm a good dream interpreter? Bill, I'll die. It's not, it's not me. Oh, oh, Elohim, Yanet, Oh, yes, God can interpret your dream. And I guess he could use me as the agent to communicate it to you. But it's not really me. It's really, it's really God. He answers, Biladai, which is really sabotaging himself. And yet, it's exactly that expression of humility which lends the success. The Gemara in Erev Gimel tells us, Whoever lowers themselves, God lifts you up. And whoever lifts themselves up, God lowers them down. Whoever pursues greatness, greatness runs away from them. If you pursue honor, honor runs away from you. And if you run away from honor and you want to run away from greatness, then greatness and honor run after you. And the Baal Shem Sev says, that's what you can, where do we learn this from? How did Chazal know that? Yosef HaTzadik. Yosef, this is his chance. They've taken him out of the pit. Shave, clean shaven. Probably put some cologne on him. He's well dressed. And he comes before Paro. Paro says, I'm ready to take you out of prison. I'm ready to put you in my cabinet. I've heard about you interpret dreams. Me? No, I'm a nothing. God interprets dreams and he's blessed me to be that agent. Biladai. So the Hashem says, that's where Chazal understood. Yosef was running away from honor and running away from greatness. And because of that, honor and greatness ran after him. And the people who spend their lives running after honor and greatness, it runs away from them. It runs away from them and it flees from, from their midst. This is what we're saying in, in Sitter Snippets. We just said this pasta. What was the pasta? In the second of the Halalukas after Ashrei. We just interpreted this in Siddur Snippets. The Pasuk is, Me'oded anavim Hashem. Hashem lifts and gives courage and helps the anavim, and anav is a humble. Mashpil rishaim aretz. Now I would have expected the Pasuk to have the opposite of an anav is a gay, is an arrogant. Or the opposite of the rasha is the tzaddik. And yet, David HaMelech sets it up that Me'oded anavim Hashem. We say this every day. He says this every day. We should know what it means. That Hashem gives, uh, lifts the humble and He lowers the wicked. Why is wicked the opposite of humble? And the answer the Malcolm says is because the arrogant person is destined to make poor choices and have bad judgment. It breeds wickedness. You'll make mistakes. You'll do the wrong thing. It comes from the wrong place. So the opposite of humility is wickedness, not arrogance. Because the arrogance, by definition, will lead to Poor choices, poor decisions. So, the anav, those who are humble, Hashem lifts them. Greatness and honor run after them. But those who are arrogant, mashpil. Hashem says, oh, look who thinks they're so big. Look who thinks they're so tough. Look who thinks that they're so capable. You know what I'm going to give you? 
an ingrown toenail. You know what I'm going to give you? A little tinnitus in your ear. The morning Gittin tells us the story of Titus HaRasha, Titus, who came and violated the Kodesh HaKadoshim, and the Gemara elaborately tells us the whole story of his wickedness. And how does Hashem pay him back? Hashem is silent. He could have struck Titus down, he could have defeated the right. Nothing. Titus, you're so tough, no problem. Go celebrate yourself as this great general, as this great warrior. And then Titus takes a nap, and a bug crawls in his ear, and Titus can't shake that ringing in his ear for the rest of his life. And there's an article written in the American Journal of Medicine that claims that the diagnosis of tinnitus comes from Titus. The name tinnitus, etymologically, it's from the fact that Titus was the first one struck with this illness. And the bug in his ear grew bigger and bigger and bigger, and he couldn't take it, and it ruined his life. Because Hashem says, oh, look who thinks they're all that. I'll give you a little mosquito, a little ingrown toenail. I'll make you have epis, a little uh, whatever. A tiny little thing, Hashem. So Hashem says, how does Hazal know that? That he lowers the arrogant and he raises the humble? He knew it from our story, simply watching the behavior of Yosef HaTzadik. Okay, Pasuk Lamarches, let's skip ahead. So he comes before Paro, Paro retells him the dreams. Previously we've analyzed, but we're not going to today, that when Paro relays the dreams, he doesn't do so the same way that they happened. Torah gives us one version of the dream, and when Paro relays the dream, he communicates the dream, he communicates it a little bit differently, and why does he do it in that way? But anyway, so Yosef listens. Really, you think you had two dreams, but you really had one dream. It's the same dream, it's the same theme. Now Yosef keeps Shtup and Hashem in there. Who asked for Hashem? He didn't take Yosef out of the pit to give him a theology lesson. This wasn't the discovery seminar. He didn't ask him for a yomiyun. So why does Yosef keep... Because Yosef is the first model of outreach. He's transforming the world with nuance and subtlety. He doesn't overtly say to Paro, listen, I'd like to interpret your dreams, but first let me tell you about the Bible codes. He doesn't say, I'd like to interpret your dreams, but first let me give you proof of God's existence. He simply weaves in there well, God's really the one who's helpful, or God's trying to communicate to you what you're going to do. It's amazing. We've talked about this in the past also. Is You see how many times Yosef name drops God, and as a result, when he's done and he tells Paro, what's Paro's response? What does Paro say? Wow, God's amazing. Turns to his, Have you ever seen such a spiritual person? Wow, look how godly this person is. Now that God has revealed all this through you, I'm so grateful to God that he sent you to me and to tell me this whole message. There's no one as discerning and wise as you. Paro is Makurov. Paro flips. He flips out. He embraces God. All because Yosef did not coerce. Yosef was not in his face. In a very nuanced way, Yosef name-dropped Hashem. And it had this enormous impact. So, Pasuk Lamed Ches. Have you ever seen somebody who's got this Ruach Elokim? So, Revolba says the following. This is the beginning of the ascent of Yosef where Paro is going to appoint him to be the viceroy. And with that begins the exile because with Yosef's ascent, our Yaakov and his offsprings descent. Yosef's going up, 
he's becoming the viceroy, and Yaakov and the progeny are coming down. All that God had promised in the Brisbane Absarim about the exile is going to be fulfilled through Yosef. It began with Yosef dreaming and the brothers disliking the dreams. And so Revolba quotes the altar of Kelm. This is why I'm, I'm telling you this piece. Revolba quotes the altar of Kelm. This is the story of the Jewish people. It's the story of the world. But when you read it, on the one hand, it sounds like it's just a bunch of human people, mere mortals, who are making decisions, who are expressing their free will. The brothers had free will, Yaakov had free will, Yosef has free will, Paro has free will, the Saramash, everyone has free will. Shesonu was Yosef. They hated Yosef and they wanted to get rid of him. That was their Bechira. But Minashamayim, Minashamayim, Hashem orchestrated and ordained and choreographed a different reality. And in this episode, that God God has many agents. God does not suspend the rules of the world. He doesn't suspend nature and history and reveal himself. He did it once when he took us out of Mitzrayim. And the Ramban there writes, he did so with such pomp and circumstance so that it would last in perpetuity. That through the huge revealed miracles, we would know that even which that which seems ordinary is really from Hashem. So that's true about the natural order. That's the whole holiday of Hanukkah. B'nei vina yemei shmona. We've been singing in Ma'oz tour. We'll sing again tonight. It doesn't say shmona yamim. It doesn't say Hanukkah's eight days. What does it say Hanukkah are? Hanukkah is brought to you by the number eight. Sesame Street. Electric, which one was it? Electric company? Sesame Street? Sesame Street. Happy Hanukkah, brought to you by the number eight. Not Shmona Yamim, eight days, but Yemei, days of? What does it mean to be days of eight? So we all know from the Maral, seven represents the days of the week, seven is nature, seven is creation, seven is the natural order. Eight is one more than nature. Eight is the supernatural. Eight is that which is transcendent. These are days not of seven, these are days of eight. These are days where we look out at the ordinary, and we realize that even the ordinary is extraordinary. Even the natural is supernatural. The only difference is that I've come to expect it. But even that which seems like it should happen automatically is really from above. There's no such thing as nature. Everything is from Hashem. And this is how you can answer the Beis Yosef's question. The Beis Yosef famously asks, and hundreds of answers have been given, that if the Pach Shemen, if the flask of oil should have lasted one day, and it lasted seven more, how, how long should the holiday be? Seven days, not eight. Why is it eight days? If it was seven extra days, it was meant to last one day. And to me, the simplest and most beautiful and most compelling answer is, what we're celebrating on that eighth day of when the oil should have lit anyway, is that even when the oil is supposed to light, the fact that it lit is no less a miracle than it lasted for seven more days. Even the natural is supernatural. Even the ordinary is extraordinary. These are days that are brought to us by the number eight. And we're supposed to see Hashem's guiding hand in that which seems like it's ordinary and natural. So that's true in the natural order. That's what Hanukkah is all about. And Ravobe, quoting the altar of Kelm, says that's what the story is all about. When you read the storyline of the second half of Brishas, you say, if you want to, on the one hand, say God is nowhere in the picture, you're entitled. Well, the brothers made their choices, and Paro made his choice, and Yosef made his choice, and lo and behold, the promise that was made to Avram came true. Or you can realize that even when things look like people are doing them, it's HaKadosh Baruch Hu 
Hashem has many agents. And Hashem brings about results through many different means. But listen to how Rav Volba applies this. I was a little surprised, given if you know Rav Volba's hashkafa. He says, We've merited to see this ourselves. The fact that following the Holocaust, the United Nations and the non-Jews of the world, Nasnu Lahem Medina, gave us Medinat Yisrael, you can't deny that that's Hashem orchestrating things from above, writes Ravolba in Shiure Chumash and a Sefer on Parsha. He says, Forget what was done with the Medina. This is among the most wondrous acts of divine providence we could ever imagine. This is on par with coming out of Mitzrayim and the splitting of the sea and the miracles of 2,000 years of surviving history. The Christians can't sleep at night because of the state of Israel. Because during the Holocaust, the church celebrated that the Jews are no longer the chosen people. And that God made a new choice. And now the Jewish people have been resurrected from the dead. And now we have a state of Israel. Sovereignty in our own land. That's why so many missionaries come to Israel. They can't make sense of it. They can't figure it out. I thought God withdrew from the Jewish people. How did they revive themselves? How did they come back? So it's a fascinating application of the Yosef story to his common time. We see from the Sezer Volba that whatever people do, what comes out of it is the result that Hashem wants. So now, how you understand that is complicated. Does it mean that people aren't accountable or responsible for their actions? So if somebody slammed into my car and left me with enormous damage, I say, well, don't pay. You're off the hook because God wanted my car to be totaled. It wasn't you. Of course not. Sefer HaChinuch writes that on the one hand, I hold the other person accountable, but the Sefer HaChinuch on the mitzvah of those sikom and sitor, that you're not allowed to take revenge, Sefer HaChinuch says, why can't you take revenge? It's one thing to hold the other person accountable. It's one thing to make you pay for the damages I incurred. But if I now additionally try to take revenge, what it means is I deny God's role in the result that I have to deal with. I have to simultaneously feel Hashem clearly wanted my car to be totaled. For whatever reason it was meant to be, whatever lesson I'm meant to draw from it, whatever reason I need to go through it, it's from Hashem that my car is totaled. He chose you to total my car so you have to pay for it. I hold you accountable. You have to pay for it because Hashem chose you to total my car, but it's from Hashem my car was totaled. Therefore, all I extract from you is compensation for the car. I'm not going to take revenge because that would deny God's role in what happened to me. But says Ravolba, the both the same can be true simultaneously. That on the one hand, I hold others accountable for their behavior, but I have to realize that the results are from Hashem. And that's true in our lives individually. If someone totals our car, and it's true in our lives collectively. Call it politically. Hashem has many agents and messengers. And yes, we have a right to vote. And we lobby and we advocate. And we campaign. And we're part of that system called democracy. And we're part of a system in which we advocate for policies that we care about. But we can't be overly invested and do too much hishtablis, forgetting 
that lev malachim biyat Hashem. The hearts of kings is in the hand of Hashem. The hearts of kings is in the hand of Hashem. And at the end of the day, Baruch Hu is choreographing and orchestrating all of history and destiny to unfold the way he wants from above. It's all part of Hashem's master plan. Perak Memalaf, Pasuk Nun. Next Pasuk. What happens? We now move on. Paro is impressed with Yosef. By the way, what made the difference? Some of Hashem say, all the other interpreters told Yosef, told Paro, here's what your dream means. They told him the problem. There were others who understood it to mean there's going to be a famine. Everyone else told Paro the problem. You know what Yosef told them? Here's the problem. I have a suggestion for a solution. Paro said, oh, somebody who has a solution doesn't just bring me a problem. You're my viceroy. You're my man. I want to be surrounded by people who don't just point out problems, but who want to be part of a solution. There's an enormous message, and we've spoken about this in the past too. But I can't help repeat it, because I feel the same way in this regard as Paro. Problems I don't need your help with. I can see the problems. I know the problems. Step forward and be part of the solution, and I welcome. To email or call or corner me at a kiddush because you want to tell me everything that's wrong with the world? I don't need your help so much with that. I'm pretty good at seeing all the problems. What we need help with is the solution. So don't ever step forward with a problem unless you're ready to be part of the solution. You have a suggestion, not a suggestion for everyone else to work on. But you're ready to volunteer, you're ready to work, you're ready to contribute, you're ready to make a difference. Bring problems when you're ready to also be part of the solution. Fine. Yosef's plan is implemented. He becomes the first uh, economic advisor. He's the sec- he becomes the first uh, secretary of, of uh, the treasury. And in this regard, he saves all of Egypt, the Egyptian empire. It's incredible what he accomplishes and what he does. And now he begins to plant his roots. First of all, who does he marry? We don't talk about this a lot, but who does Yosef end up marrying? Osnas. Who's Osnas? Just happens to be the daughter of the woman who relentlessly pursued him and tried to seduce him and falsely accused him. What do you think that Hanukkah party was like in that house? How do you think that Pesach Seder went? Thanksgiving dinner at the Potiphar home. So he has two sons. He has two sons. He names one son Menashe. And why does he name him Menashe? Because God has caused me to forget all the hardship of everywhere I came from. One thing I know is if you name your son, thank you Hashem for allowing me to forget everything about where I came from and the hardship, one thing is clear to me. You haven't forgotten anything. So that in itself needs to be addressed. The Shem Hashem Ephraim. And the second name he names Ephraim. Because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. The Hasidic Shesvarim will talk about Yosef named his two sons corresponding with our two approaches to life, the Surmeira and the Asetov. Menashe is the Surmeira and the Ephraim is the, the Asetov. And these attributes and character traits of one being characterized by avoiding the bad and the other characterized by the pursuit of the good follow them throughout their lives. And you see it all the way through, through Vayechi and Yaakov and the switching of the hands, but not for now. So Pasuk Nun, that Yosef had two sons. And here Revolba says the following. Want a Revolba kick today. Oh. Yosef Banim. He had two sons before the famine came. Who were born to Asnas Bas Potifera, Beterem Tavosh Nasarav. Zakhtar Ashi, 
Rashi tells us before the famine came. Why is it important to tell us that the two sons were born before the famine came? Why is that an important fact? Who needs that detail? The timeline of family planning of Yosef and Asnas. Because you're not allowed to have intimacy, one is, has to practice abstinence during the years of a famine. Why? As I state. Where does it say in, in Shulchan Arach that you have to be abstinent during the years of a famine? Where does it say that? That's a halacha? What's the halacha based on? And let me ask you this. Yosef and Asnas practicing, practicing abstinence, did that make the corn grow in the field? Were the supermarket shelves stocked because they were abstinent in their bedroom at home? So Revolba wonders, what good did it do that Yosef and Asnas separated from each other and denied themselves the intimacy and the love and the connection that made the food grow, that made the famine end? What good did it do? Why do that? And where does it say you have to? Maza mashpia o gorea lachlal imu meshamesh mitasa. Ela ha'inyan shal leishtatev b'tzaras haklal ena tali b'yachas shal nasina. Malas es kedei lazo l'tzibar b'tzaraso ela hu inyan shal hargasha. The reason that you practice, not abstinence in particular, but that when someone else is suffering, you deny yourself some pleasure. Why? It's not because it's going to make that person's life better, but because you want to feel their pain. Adam Tzarech Lasez Ba'olam Tzibur. The Mishnah Perki tells us that one of the 48 ways in which Torah is acquired is no say Ba'ol Im Chavero. You have to be willing to be no say Ba'ol. You have to feel the pain of another. Where do we learn that from? Kodesh Baruch himself. He speaks to Moshe from the snare, the lowliest of a thorn bush. Why? Hashem himself says, I feel your pain. There's a very Jewish quality of even when it won't relieve the suffering of another. Financially, you're experiencing a collapse, you can't pay your bills, and therefore I'm not going to indulge in that luxury, even if I'm not giving you that money. You're trying to have a child, and therefore I'm going to deprive myself of some... You're having a terrible diagnosis, a terminal illness, you've experienced a horrific loss, so therefore I'm going to... Yeah, not because my sleeping with one pillow instead of two is going to make your terminal, terminal illness reverse, but because what I'm saying to you is, as long as you're in pain, I can indulge in extra pleasure. It's not a din in the other person, it's in our own character. It's fashioning and molding and shaping who we are and we're meant to be and how we're meant to behave. There's a lot more to say about this. We've spoken about Nosei Ba'olam Chavero in the past, but here's an example of Nosei Ba'olam Chavero. Of Nosei Ba'olam Chavero. I'm going to carry the burden with you. I want you to know that as long as you suffer, I'm not indulging in extra pleasure. That I too am with you. I'm feeling your pain. I identify. I feel not only a sympathy, but I feel an empathy for you and for what you're going through. Pasuk Nanalaf. Next Pasuk. Yosef calls one Menasha and he calls the other Ephraim. One because he says, Hashem caused me to forget, and the other because Hashem allowed me to, to grow and to spread. Rav Nachman says the following. Homiletically. Chasid if you want to evaluate and assess where you're holding in your Avodah Hashem, if you want to know how well you're doing, says Rav Nachman, you have to forget where you came from and forget the earlier good deeds you did and evaluate yourself based on right now. And that's what Yosef said. Yosef says, you know, I'm only as good as my next decision in Avodah Hashem. Do you know how much sacrifice I made? 
Do you know what it took me to become who I am? You can't rest on your laurels. Beis Avi, do you know where I come from? My yichus? Give me a second chance. Judge me favorably because of my yichus. Says the Pasuk, no. Kinashani Elohim is called Amaliva, it's called Beis Avi. One has to forget where they come from and forget their previous achievements and realize that spiritually we're only as good as our next spiritual decision. That every moment in that moment, we have to live up to who we're meant to be in that moment and in that moment and beyond. Okay, a few more quick things. Perak Membe's Pasuk test. Story goes on, the famine comes, it devastates Egypt. Yaakov sends his sons down to go get provisions. Hashem's whole plan now is unfolding. The brothers come, they bow to Yosef. This is already a fulfillment of the first dream. They don't know it's Yosef, and they're bowing, and it's a fulfillment of the first dream. Yosef remembers all the dreams. And he accuses them, and he says, You are spies. You came in order to see the land. And they said, No, it's not true. And he says to them, Yeah, that's why you're here. And they say, no, there's still one more. There's a younger war, and he's not here. So Yosef says to them, here's how I'll test you. Here's your test. Here's the test whether you'll bring your younger brother, your little brother here. Why is that the test? All this is being orchestrated by Yosef in an effort to test the brothers. There's only one brother who shares the same mother as me. So therefore, there's only one way to assess and test whether you really regret and are remorseful for the way that you treated me. And how is that? By orchestrating things, creating the scenario exactly the way it was and see whether you do it again. Tshuva gemura. I'm going to put you back in the same circumstance and see if you do it differently this time. So me, you threw me in a pit. You sold me into slavery. You neglected me, dismissed me, you got rid of me. So I want to tell you, let's see how you treat another brother. And let's see whether, in fact, you are remorseful or not. That's the simple understanding of the, of the Pasuk. That's the simple understanding of the Pasuk. Listen to what Revolta says. That Yosef remembers. And here he addresses the question. 20 years Yosef is in Mitzrayim. He's now with his own brothers. And instead of saying, it's me, Yosef. Guys, it's me. It's been so long. How's dad? Bring him down here. Why doesn't he reveal himself? And even when he was at Potiphar, you could ask the same question. When he was killing it, making it rain in the house of Potiphar, before he was falsely accused, when everything was going well in last week's parsha, he sold him to slavery, he's down there, he now has a certain position of prominence. Good, send an email, a text message, a, carrier, a courier, send a, carrier, a pigeon, do whatever you need to do. So Ramban is bothered by this, and the Ramban answers, Yosef knew that Hashem's dreams, that Hashem's plan had to come true, he had dreams of what Hashem's plan was, and he wasn't going to get in the way of Hashem. Let, enable Hashem to let Invets unfold. Don't get in his way, says the Ramban. And you can extract from this as revolver a very powerful lesson. How can a person do that? Suspend their will, their desire, their need to reach out and reunite with their father because they perceive that that's not what Hashem wants from me right now. Of course, he was in great pain that he couldn't tell his father he was still alive. We cannot be driven by emotion. We have to be driven by intellect. We are intellectual beings. We are rational beings. And our tzelem elokim is in our cognitive ability. And when we're rationally, intellectually, we've concluded something's right, no matter how badly our emotions tell us we want it, 
We have to follow what's right. And that's where Yosef dug the courage and the strength to do it. And that's how Revolve interprets the Pasuk, the, uh, the Medrash and, the, and Pirkei Avos. Even before Torah comes When a person logically and rationally, intellectually concludes something's right, no matter how much you're driven emotionally to do something different, that's what you have to do. And that's why the book of Breshas is called by Chazal Sefer Hayashar. Sefer Hayashar is Hanhaga im Seichel Hayashar. The Sefer Hayashar is the book of how to do what's Yashar. Always ask yourself, what does Hashem want from me right now? And when it's incompatible with what you want, too bad, tough nuggies. You don't get to do what you want. And if it doesn't work with what your emotion tells you, but it's not what I want. This is exactly the crisis of our generation. And we have yet to formulate a compelling answer to young people who say, but it's not what I want to do. It's not what I believe. It's not where I want to go. It's not how I want to live. Tefillin doesn't do anything for me. Shabbos doesn't do anything for me. And the answer, well, that's too bad. Who said anything has to do something for you? Since when is that the measure, the metric through which we evaluate whether we should do something or not? Sefer Hayasha. You have to do what's correct and what's right, even if it's not what you want. It's not compatible with what your emotion or what your drive tells you. And you see, Yosef was able to withstand and he was able to withhold. Previously, I mentioned the insight of someone that the reason Yosef didn't reunite is maybe he suspected his father. That's a controversial view, if that's true. Lenny Grinstein gave me the Barbanel last week, who says, you know why Yosef didn't go back to his father? You know why he didn't even contact his father? It's very interesting in our day. Because Yosef was very, very, very concerned that he would be accused of dual loyalty. Here he has just risen. Here he's the secretary of the treasury. Here he's in charge of the whole economy of Egypt. And now you're going to go reach out back to your father in Eretz Canaan, and you're going to reveal your dual loyalty, and you're going to arouse suspicion about you. Yosef was able to hold back because, again, using Revolba's interpretation, Sefer Hayasher, the Sechel Hayasher, he put what he thought was correct and right ahead of even his emotions and what he wanted to do. The Imre Chaim, the Vishnitzer Rebbe, maybe we'll finish with this, we have to share at least one Vishnitzer, even though there's so much we didn't get to. Oh, there's such beautiful things connected to Hanukkah. Okay, I'll tell you quickly two more things. Quickly, two more things. So one is on this pas, Miraglimatem. Says the Imre Chaim. You know what Miraglimatem means? Miraglim ilashin regilus. Regilimatem lavo arheina v'chozum v'shavum uboim. Ke mitzvahs anashim melamuda. You know what your sin is, Miraglim? Not that you're spies, but that you are creatures of hergel, of habit. You come and you go and you've created this habit, but there's no sincerity, there's no authenticity. You're not really present and mindful and conscientious and conscious in what you're doing. You're simply creatures of habit. Muraglimatem. Hergel. You're just creatures of habit. So bezos tilchan here's how I'm going to test you. You know how you can test a creature of habit whether they're doing it sincerely? In bevo achichem hakaton heina. Whether you do it like a katan. You see, a katan, I'll give you an example. A boy turns bar mitzvah. And the month before he starts putting on tefillin, he can't sleep at night because he's going to put on his tefillin. And each of those first months he's putting on tefillin, ooh, he's on, on fire. Tefillin, it's so careful. And the, it's a yud touching the box and the strap and the bracha and the mirror and the tefillin and Hashem and the heart and the head. Ah, oh, ooh, ah, tefillin. By his 14th birthday, uh, tefillin. You're lucky if he's still putting on the tefillin. How do you know if it's hergel, if it's just habit and ritual and rote? Or whether there's drive and emotion and dynamism and energy and presence. 
This was the test, Yosef says. Hakaton heina. Is the katan here? Is the katan in you here? Meraglim? Are you just creatures of hergel? Is it just habit? Or is there a katan heina? Is there a child in you? The childlike enthusiasm and the childlike excitement. That's part of what the Hanukkah candles are all about. I'm just ending with two words on Miketz and Hanukkah together. This is the first. This is Imre Chaim. Because the Tzvah Samus tells us, the Gemara tells us, when do you light Hanukkah candles? Achetichle regal menashuk. The Hanukkah candles can be lit from, call it sunset, 10 minutes after sunset, says, different opinions, when it gets dark, until when? Gemara says, Achetichle regal menashuk, till people are no longer walking around. Tzvah Samus says, don't read it, that people aren't walking around, but that you need to light the candles and look at them and have them light you up until when? Until you've broken the habit in you. Light the light and let it illuminate what's right in front of you and break out of habit. Stop being a creature of habit. Stop living your lives, just doing everything out of habit, but reawaken and revive the katan in you that childlike enthusiasm and excitement and dynamism, reawaken it. That Hanukkah lights need to last until when? Until it breaks us out of the habits that we have formed. That is the purpose. And that's what Yosef was testing his brothers. Are you just Miraglim? Are you just here as creatures of habit? Or is the Katan, is there a childlike enthusiasm in you? In you. I'll tell you one last connection between the two is the Pasuk that says the following. So Yosef sees Binyamin, and he tests his brother's sincerity, and they approach the person who's in the home of Yosef, and where do they speak to him? Where Davka El Pesach Habayis. says of Pinchas of Karetz, why do they speak to him Davka El Pesach Habayis? And he answers, what is at the Pesach Habayis? The mezuzah. And what does it say on the mezuzah? Shin Dalad Yud, one of the names of Hashem. And where do we see that name of Hashem used? The El Shaddai Yitain Lachem Rachamim, with Yaakov Avinu. So therefore they stood the Pesach Habayis because they were invoking the message and the power of the mezuzah. The mezuzah is on the doorpost of the home. What else is on the doorpost of the home? People, anyone awake still in here? Yeah. Anyone know what holiday it is? Anyone here Jewish? It's the holiday of Hanukkah. And what do we light? The menorah. And where do you put the menorah? So today, Sakana, you're entitled to put the menorah inside. But in the time of the Gemara, some people still today, my father lights the menorah outside. And where does the menorah go when it's lit outside? It goes on the doorpost where? Opposite the mezuzah. Why? So the classic reason given is so that a person should be surrounded by mitzvos, Surrounded by mitzvos. But the mezuzah is on the right. Why is the mezuzah on the right? Because we always give deference to the right over the left. Mm-hmm. There's not enough room on the right to put the mezuzah and the menorah. Put them both on the right. So the classic reason is because you need to be surrounded by mitzvos. But I want to tell you the reason we'll end with this that Rabbi Shlomo gave. Such a beautiful reason. He says the mezuzah and the menorah are both on the right side. What are you talking about? I'm looking at the door, and the mezuzah's on the right, the menorah's on the left. What are you talking about? He says, no. The mezuzah's on the right side when you're walking into the house. And when you walk into a house, you bring the message of the mezuzah. 
the unity of Hashem's existence, and peace and harmony, and the values and the morals and the ethics and the derech that the mezuzah reminds me of, I touch it, I kiss it on the way into my home, and I bring that light into my home. And then when I'm leaving my home, and I'm going to school, I'm going to work, I'm going to the gym, I'm going to the supermarket, the menorah's on my right going out that the mission of a Jew is to light up and dispel the darkness in this world. And I take all the values that were in my home, and the menorah reminds me, bring it out with me wherever I go. That the truth is, the mezuzah and the menorah are both on the right. It all depends which direction you're going in. Afrelech and Hanukkah, effective next week, a new policy. Effective new, we're gonna raise the most amount of money yet, still do Friends of BRS, but every cell phone that gets off is $180 to Boca Raton Synagogue. Effective immediately next Tuesday.